welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today for our first episode of the new year, I'm talking with Professor of Psychology, Carrie Keating. Professor Keating specializes in nonverbal and physiognomic elements of social dominance, influence, power, status, leadership, and charisma. She also studies initiation and hazing, social, emotional development, and social bonds from infancy to adulthood. Keating's classes have included introductory psychology, research methods, and specialty seminars in leadership, social bonds, cross-cultural human development, and nonverbal communication. Professor Keating earned her bachelor's and her PhD from Syracuse University, and her work has appeared in dozens of psychological journals. Professor Keating has also been featured in many media outlets in the U.S. and abroad, in print, on the radio, and on television. Her work has appeared in PBS's Scientific American Frontiers, ABC's What Would You Do, Dateline NBC, Discovery Magazine, 2020, The McLaughlin Group, The Oprah Winfrey Show, The Learning Channel, CNN, and ABC's Good Morning America. Professor Keating, welcome to 13. Thank you, Dan, for that lovely introduction. Well, we are glad to have you here for our first episode of the year. So thanks for joining. Well, it's an incredible day to be here. January 7th, 2021, one of the most historic events of our country's history happened yesterday and overnight. It's true. It's hard to believe. The overrunning of the capital of the United States in Washington, D.C., that's incredible. Yeah. So being a person who studies leadership... Uh, wow, I, I've taken this all to heart. <laughs> hmm. And I hope I don't have too much to say. <laughs> well, we'll get to that a little bit later. I kind of want to build up here a little bit just on some of your research and how you look at these types of things. And um, and then I think we'll get to a little bit more uh, current events. Okay. So we'll start out with question number one. So your Colgate uh, biography explains that you specialize in nonverbal and physiognomic elements of social dominance, influence, and power. Can you start by explaining what physiognomic elements of social dominance are and what exactly that means? Yeah, it all pertains to a single big idea, not my own. It's been researched over decades. And that is that a lot of leadership isn't competence necessarily. It isn't how well people lead or their best ideas. It's about appearance. And it's to a shocking degree about appearance. And by appearance, we mean things like height. We mean things like facial width. We mean things like physiognomy or physiognomic cues, facial structural cues. And you wouldn't think leadership would really relate to that very much, but in fact it does. And it really stems from our primate history. We tend to judge people the way perhaps we shouldn't by their cover, by their appearances. And in actual fact, oddly enough, that's not totally wrong. Appearance does predict aspects, traits, other traits, even behaviors of people. So uh, there's a kernel of truth to some of these physiognomic traits. So for example, um, people who have uh, broad, uh, faces, say these are people on the, in uh, playing hockey, 
on the ice playing hockey, those folks tend to have greater penalties, spend more time out than folks who have more narrow faces. And there are other predictions we can make about facial width. It appears that facial width may be related to testosterone during development and may lead to higher levels of aggression. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Does it, when you talk about this, do people automatically start wondering how, how wide their face is? Yes, I have been known to read faces. I've never made any money out of it, but I have been known to do it. Yes. <laughs> you can tell some things about people. You can make, you can hedge some bets based on appearances, whether that's good or bad. I'm just telling you about the science. Interesting. And it isn't all good, but there you have it. Hmm. So you also write in your bio that you pursue an understanding of the elusive quality of charisma by investigating the skills, traits, and motives associated with social dominance and leadership in children and adults. So I'm curious how you go about assessing someone's charisma. What is the, what is the best way to do that or how do you do that? Yeah, well, the fun way to do it is to just write and think about it. And there's some wonderful books on charisma that historians have taken up. And they're much more interesting than a guy like me who really, together with my students and collaborators, are in the laboratory trying to tease apart the little bits of things that we consider go into this package of traits we call charisma. So charismatic leaders are the most persuasive, the most charming, the most powerful. In fact, I would argue that charisma itself is one of the most powerful forces on the planet. Uh, when a leader is charismatic, all sorts of things can happen in a country, in a world, in, in a, a business organization even, um, on a university campus. And so charismatic leadership is like none other, it's powerful. And the ways in which it's powerful are very, very old. Charismatic leaders use tricks that are evolutionarily old in the sense that they play to our emotions and they play to our psyche in ways that we can't trace. They're that inborn in a sense. So you will find uh, newborn babies react differently to different physiognomic cues. Some are more attractive to them than others. And that's when they've just recently popped out of the womb. So these are not learned things. These are built into our brains and our bodies in ways that we are very attentive to, we're exquisitely sensitive to, but we're not aware of it. And that's what makes it so powerful. When you're not aware of the forces that are acting on your brain and on your thoughts and on your behavior, that's when they're the most powerful. Is it something that can be taught? You can decode it and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. In 2016, in the fall of 2016, during the presidential election, you might remember that election not so long ago. Vaguely, yeah. Uh, yeah, I assigned <laughs> my leadership class uh, in teams. They were to try and predict what would be the outcome of the very closest swing state elections. There were four such states, and of the four teams, all four predicted Donald Trump. Nobody in the press was predicting Donald Trump. None of the pundits were talking about Trump winning that election. But my students learned this from me. 
I said to them, I don't, I don't know how you're going to make this prediction, but whatever you do, when you watch these political candidates on stage, please do me one favor, turn off the volume. If you turned off the volume, you would have looked at that stage of Republican candidates and you would have picked Donald Trump early in the running of the candidates. And if you had looked at Donald Trump on stage with Hillary Clinton and just judged from the nonverbal communication, you would have also said that one looks like the leader. So for better or for worse, once again, I'm giving you the science here. I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. We're just sure. trying to read the data. Sure. And so all four of my groups, all four of my teams predict Donald J. Trump as the winner. And whereas everybody else was shocked um, when the results came in and he was the leader, against all odds and against the polls, um, we were not. What drew you to this work? How did you end up kind of going down this path? <laughs> Even as a little girl, I was interested in politics, interested in power, wanted to figure it out. Probably wished I could have some charisma. That didn't work out. So I might as well study it, right? Scientists always study what it is they'd like to have. <laughs> so I think I might be in that bin. Uh, but Studying power was so interesting to me. And I, it, what else was interesting to me, even as a child, uh, was the fact that people don't express what they're really feeling. They don't tell you what they're really going to do. But if you watch their nonverbal communication, you can read them and you can tell. So I became very uh, sensitive to nonverbal cues at an early age. And uh, once I got to college, I pursued an interest in psychology and the methodology that psychological science uses. And then in graduate school, they told me I wasn't allowed to study nonverbal communication because it wasn't important. And that Im immediately drew me to the topic. <laughs> <laughs> so we used to carry around secret papers on nonverbal communication in plain brown bags and read them at night when our professors weren't watching us in graduate school. That's hilarious. Yeah. So what are the most prevalent traits of effective leaders? So you talk about that charisma and you talk about effective leaders, you know, having certain traits. What, what are the things that really stand out as being the most important? Yeah. You know, we went to work hard on this um, just this past, well, actually, over the last six years, I'd say. And by we, I mean my wonderful lab of Colgate students. Um, I would not know as what I know today without the help of these wonderful Colgate students. They were in on the ground floor on this research. And so we went out to try and discover what are the two are the basic elements of appearing to be a leader. And all of our work is done with something called thin slices. And thin slices are very short uh, video, visual uh, stimuli, sometimes as short as five seconds, 30 seconds, a minute or two. It's a remarkable what you can tell about a person from just that thin slice of behavior. Oh, by the way, and with the sound off. So we launched a couple of studies that were national studies. We looked at eligible voters to try and see what made for a formula for charisma. We showed them thin slices of actual leaders, political leaders, some of whom were late in the Senate and in the House last night doing their voting. 
At any rate, uh, those very people were the kind of subjects, our thin slice subjects of the respondents we got cross-nationally. These eligible voters told us two things. Number one, they agreed who looked formidable, who looked dominant, strong, and powerful. And people agreed on that. We asked other people who looked uh, warm, receptive, uh, attractive. There was a lot of agreement on that. And the political leaders, some of whom looked formidable, but not warm, some of whom looked warm, but not formidable, they were not charismatic. It took two qualities, and this was kind of interesting, and by the way, surprising to some researchers. It was the political leaders who stood in the House or the Senate and gave speeches in a manner which made them look both formidable, but also receptive, warm, somebody you'd maybe like to be like. So it took, the mathematically, we figured this out, it took those two components to make a charismatic appearing leader. And that was true for men or women, black or white, Hispanic or not, all different sorts of leaders. Wow. In 1993, you published research that found a direct relationship between children and men who are convincing liars and leadership. And part of that experiment focused on each participant's ability to lie convincingly. Participants uh, in the study were given either sweetened Kool-Aid or Kool-Aid that was mixed with baking soda instead of sugar, right? Um, (laughs) Those who drank the unsweetened Kool-Aid were then told to lie to an interviewer to convince them that the drink tastes good. What did you find? (laughs) Well, we found what we had predicted we would find, and that is that the leaders of these groups of individuals we tested were the best at fooling fooling us, the best at fooling the judges, the best at making something false, a false statement, look true. They were pretty good, by the way, at telling the truth, but they weren't that much better than anybody else. Where they really were uh, strong was in their ability to deceive. So if you ask an everyday leader, and these everyday leaders uh, we used in this study were college students, who we put to the task in a group problem solving routine. And um, this is no surprise. Uh, Decades of research has shown that a dominance hierarchy forms within usually minutes of an interaction between strangers. The dominance hierarchy is evident. You would see it with your eyes, Dan. I would see the same hierarchy with mine. And the person at the top of that hierarchy, when brought back to our lab, they were the best liars. And that was true of college students. And perhaps even more weirdly, it was also true of preschoolers. Really? So we tested preschoolers as well. And we went into the preschool classroom and we simply observed preschoolers the way I had observed, uh, by the way, monkeys <laughs> in previous research that I've done which is we just did naturalistic observation. If you watch a group of monkeys or a group of kids uh, or a group of college students for that matter, or a group of adults interacting, uh, you can track their behavior and see who speaks the most, who has the most influence, who says the least, who gets their way, who often gets their way, by the way, nicely. Everybody thinks that they're great guys or great girls, but 
even these little preschoolers, some of them are getting their way, others are not. Hmm. And they often usually do it in a nice way. So at any rate, we could track these preschoolers' dominance the way we tracked in a slightly different way than we track the college student dominance. And what we found with the preschoolers was the same thing. The preschooler who could look the interviewer right in the eye and say, oh yeah, I like that drink. That was terrific drink. And and make us absolutely believe it and make a panel of judges absolutely believe it. Those were the leaders of the preschool group. Some of your recent work has included showing hundreds of Democrats, Republicans, and independents brief video recordings of unfamiliar political leaders making speeches with the recordings muted, like you mentioned earlier. And they had no trouble agreeing who was charismatic and who was not. Can you tell us more about this? Who, who was, who's who? Like who uh, ended up performing well in this study and um, who didn't? Yeah, <laughs> Uh, It seems no matter how many times I run different stimuli, which I I grab from online sources, and uh, there are lots of online sources of politicians giving speeches, no matter how many times I do this, Cory Booker always ends up at the top. I can't explain that, but Cory is (laughs) is extremely charismatic, and he's actually known for that. And by the way, he flew to the top of the... uh, charisma hierarchy, even before anyone recognized him as a political candidate running for the presidential office, um, the 2020, which he eventually uh, left that role. But uh, at any rate, there are particular um, gestures and performances that individuals who are charismatic seem to be able to achieve. And so we looked We scrutinized, not only did my students, by the way, run the thin slices that we talked about before and look at how oftentimes, how remarkable actually the agreement about whose charisma fell out of the data. In fact, I would say it's one of the most remarkable traits I've ever studied because the agreement between people from different backgrounds, different genders, different areas of the country actually agree on who's charismatic and who's not. Hmm. By the way, in those uh, surveys, Donald Trump turned out to be charismatic um, in, in the top five of many of the folks we, we um, tested. So other people recognize the charisma of Donald Trump, who eventually won that 2016 election, of course. Hmm. At any rate, um, charisma seems to have this nonverbal component to it uh, that people agree on. And it's interesting. I thought I would be able to identify particular gestures that related to charisma, and some were related. For example, good eye contact. That's no surprise. But what was more remarkable was that it took two kinds of gestures. It took gestures that you would find very attractive. It also took gestures that you would find to be a little off-putting or a little dangerous or a little make you feel like you were maybe taking a risk getting too close to this person. And that was in sync with our psychological traits that we had projected. In other words, both verbally and non-verbally, both physiognomically and in terms of gestural behavior, The charismatic politician did a little bit of come here, come hither, bringing you in close with smiling, some eye contact, 
some warmth gestures, but also a little bit of beware, mm-hmm. holding their hand as if they were signaling you to come here with a finger, but also putting up a palm saying, you better not come too close. And it was that interesting combination that got us thinking about maybe these individuals have a particular effect when we watch them non-verbally that our brains aren't even aware of, but they might have an individually uh, unique mark on the brain, uh, the brains of followers. Hmm. Have you ever done anything similar with like cult leaders? <laughs> so I think of like Jim Jones or, you know, Heaven's Gate or, you know, any of these different cults. I mean, do yes. those leaders have, you know, many of the same traits? Actually, they do. I, I see it along a continuum. Hmm. So we have a continuum of people who are charismatic in this way where they can signal both come hither, but beware, approach, but avoid, watch out. And along that continuum, we have uh, very astute and capable political leaders who use those kinds of signaling systems for the good, to motivate people for good things. Then we have more devious politicians who use them to be manipulative and who can use them for bad things. And we have cult leaders who use many of the same kinds of basic sort of uh, techniques to bring people in close, but also make them beware. And it turns out that there are animal experiments from back in the 60s. You'd never want to do these experiments now. We know too much. But other, from other labs, we know that if you want to make an animal or a child dependent on you or anybody, an adult dependent on another adult, what you do is you merge these signals. You say at some point, come here. I'm receptive. I'm warm. Trust me. And at the same time, in close juxtaposition, you warn them away by doing something harsh. I think it sounds so, like my cats. It does sound like <laughs> their cats. It, it might also ring some bells for people who have gone through either indoctrination, mm. formal indoctrination, or hazing. Interesting. So it's the same formula that works on the human brain in a very particular way. If I want a, a puppy to be very dependent on me and never leave my left knee, then what I would do is punish them sometimes, but not all the time sometimes reward, sometimes punish. And that combination of reward and punishment seems to drive the approach avoidance system in the human brain, in the puppy's brain, in lots of organisms' brains. And it sets up particular conditions for social bonds that are extremely hard to break. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, And and it could also be true, by the way, of charismatic leaders. Might they create exactly these same kinds of bonds that go so deeply? They have a a deep and long psychological reach right into our brains. Wow. In 2018, you published a paper titled About Face, Facial Status Cues and Perceptions of Charismatic Leadership. And the abstract of that work reads... Leaders of every organizational stripe, corporate, political, military, religious, and others use facial status cues to alarm and disarm, threaten and appease, and repulse and beguile. 
what are the facial cues and why are they so effective? Hmm. Uh, these are cues, facial cues that uh, speak to us, speak to us because of our evolutionary history. In fact, if you go way back to a lot of the research that was done early on, some by myself in my lab and some by others, uh, some of the same signaling systems, be they physiognomic or gestural, you find in non-human primates as well. So the human smile is actually analogous or homologous even. That is, they share a common root, likely genetically, with the non-human primate grimace. If you've ever seen, uh, I don't know, a rhesus monkey grimacing exactly the way you're doing now, I just want to tell the audience. <laughs> no one can see it, but I'm making a face. That was a beautiful <laughs> grimace that Dan did. <laughs> And that grimace is a submissive gesture and it turns off aggressiveness on the part of other animals coming toward the grimacing individual. And guess what? It works for humans too. Think about the last party you went to, some bigwig's house. You didn't really want to be there. You couldn't wait to get home. And what are you doing? You're probably smiling. It's not because you're happy to be there. <laughs> it's probably because you're being polite and uh, signaling that you are no threat, you're submissive, you're, you know, polite. Mm. So Do some of these gestures uh, work that way. And in terms of physiognomy, once again, the, the more, generally speaking, the more masculine looking feature, the more it expresses dominance. Do nonverbal cues differ between cultures and regions of the world? Or is it a u universal human language of sorts? Boy, they do and they don't. Hmm. Great answer, right? <laughs> I'm covered in all ways there. Um, the smile, the human smile seems to be homologous to the non-human grimace and universal. The smile does seem to mean pretty much the same thing everywhere. However, there are tweaks. There are different kinds of smiles. There are cultures where smiling is uh, considered impolite for women to do. Um, so there are different kinds of smiles that mean different kinds of things in, in different places. That said, um, the way in which we use gaze, eye gaze, is uh, oftentimes similar um, from culture to culture. A straight gaze is generally threatening and cultures have rules about how long you can stare into the eyes of others. The British stare longer than we do and consider us to be kind of impolite almost, because we're sometimes not interested. If you gaze for a long time into someone's eyes, sometimes they think you're into them. It can be a flirting gesture. Sure. So uh, we have different ways of interpreting and managing. It's sort of nonverbal impression management differs from culture to culture. And to some degree, um, from generation to generation, and also between the genders. Yeah, that's different my next question. Genders. Very good segue. I was, I was wondering, so do different gender, like, you know, so do men and women, um, do they see these gestures differently? Is there, is there a big difference there? Uh, women generally are more sensitive to nonverbal communication than men are. This has been tested by many different labs, seems to be the case. Uh, and that said, it doesn't mean they're the most the clearest communicators. Women tend to smile when they're happy, when they're trying to be polite, when they're angry, when they're about to get uh, 
really upset when they're about to win something, when they're about to lose something. I mean, <laughs> so the rules uh, for smiling for women are restrictive in that women are expected to smile. And you know what we call women, uh, what we just how we describe women who don't smile enough. We say she has a resting bitch face. So the resting bitch face is directly related to this rule that women have to smile all the time. Once again, those are the data. I'm not saying it's fair. I'd probably be the last one to say that's fair. As much as the country has shifted to online interactions during the pandemic, have you looked at how that inter, uh, impacts nonverbal cues and is there something that's really lost when people are talking to each other as we are now on Zoom? Um, and, you know, is there any kind of long-term impact to how we communicate with each other um, because of that? Yeah, you know, most experts who study nonverbal communication have been intrigued by our modern world and think that there will be somewhat of a nonverbal communication deficit in future. And, you know, a lot of the cues that we pick up from one another um, that are nonverbal require personal closeness, Mm. physical closeness. So this distance, uh, for example, olfactory cues, uh, the the energy that we get from one another. So, So when you watch me behave, your brain responds almost as if you're doing the same behavior called motor mimicry. In fact, you're probably, when I smile, you smile. Uh, I just told you we were going to do that, and you did it anyway, Dan. Yes, I don't know. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's something that we naturally and normally do. We mimic one another. And uh, we do that even in the slight uh, muscular body forms so that when we are not close, in close physical proximity, we lose a lot of that. So I think we will lose a lot of that. I think some of us are going to get better at expressing things through our eyes um, mm. because that's above the mask and we can see it. So people are trying to learn how to smile with their eyes. Have you been doing that behind your mask? I try. I feel bad because I'm a, I'm a smiler. I'm, I'm always smiling at people at stores, especially if I don't know people. I want to, you know, I don't know what it is. I guess you say <laughs> right. like the non-threatening thing, but with the right. mask, it's almost you have to try and... I don't know. You have to really smile, right? Yeah, yeah. You so smile genuine, under the mask. Right. You smile. So so keep smiling. <laughs> so if you smile under your mask very broadly, it will probably give you little crow's feet around the eyes. Yeah. And those kinds of smiles tend to be the more genuine smiles anyway. They're not the controlled impression management, nonverbal impression management kinds of behaviors we do. That broad, quick smile is very captivating. It um, communicates. Uh, more strongly to people. And so, uh, you know, I think we can manage our masks if we're clever and we really let ourselves feel what we're smiling about. The more you feel it, the more it will be expressed in the upper half of your face, whatever emotion it is. Hmm. Yeah. I'm curious about, um, you know, some people become so enamored with some politicians and not others, like fervent devotion. Why do people become so enamored with some politicians and not others? Whereas, you know, they had to get elected, right? They they had to be popular enough. Um, but some people, 
inspire a, a devotion that is beyond anything that you normally see elsewhere. And I guess I'm, I'm curious why that may be, or if there's certain things that, um, you know, you think about leaders throughout history who have had, you know, very loyal followings and, um, you know, Donald Trump being a good example now of, you know, some, there are people that ardently um, support him. And um, I'm curious why that may be, or if there's anything that stands out. And you said he performed well, um, you know, by all measures with the sound off. So his, his nonverbal cues were good. Um, but what else, I guess, creates such devotion? Or is it that, you know, that hazing type thing, that, that giving and taking? You know, I'm curious. Exactly that. So the charismatic leader is the leader by definition that creates this intense devoted followership. And what's interesting about charisma is it's actually not a trait of the leader. It's actually a relationship. Mm. We now understand leadership, not just research from my laboratory, but research that's been done over the last couple of decades. And so not that old, but we now understand that leadership has a lot to do with followership that you really can't study leadership in the absence of followership. You have no leaders if you don't have followers. So we finally figured that out. That's good. <laughs> if you look at and charismatic leadership in particular as a relationship, the pieces begin to fall into place. So remember we talked about charismatic leaders being able to be powerful and actually almost irresistible because they say to you non-verbally, come hither, but beware. They show dominance and formidability, but also receptivity and warmth. You want to be like them. They express that in their traits, their physical traits, and they express this in their gestural behavior. And so that combination has a particular effect on human brains. And how can I say this? My students and I studied this in the lab. What we did is we asked students to come into the lab individually and watch our thin slices of leaders, some of whom were quite charismatic. I think Cory Booker was definitely in there. And then there were others who were not charismatic. Uh, and we had them watch segments of these leaders acting, giving speeches. Again, the volume was off, so they only got to judge them based on their nonverbal communication. And we attached a net on their heads to see what their brains were doing, to see how their brains were reacting to charismatic and non-charismatic leaders. And uh, these were leaders that students did not recognize. So if they recognized Cory Booker, we didn't use the, those data. So for leaders that were not recognized, students sat, they watched, some were charismatic leaders. They didn't know that, the students, we didn't tell them who was charismatic and who was not, we didn't have to. Their brains told them. So what we found is that the charismatic leaders, as we predicted, stimulated both hemispheres of the brain equally. And one hemisphere of the brain was telling them, come here. The other half of the brain, the right hemisphere, was saying, beware. So once again, we found evidence that the reason why these charismatic leaders are so effective 
is because they stimulate both the approach and avoidance systems, motivational systems in human beings. And that is a combination that we know from animal research that creates a unique dependency on the agent who expresses those two things. So remember that puppy, that puppy who we sometimes stroke when they approach and that puppy who we sometimes hit when they approach, wrap them on the nose. That's the puppy who's gonna approach us the most, run to us most quickly, stay with us the longest. Hmm. Experimental research done in the 60s, not in my lab, I wouldn't wanna do it. <laughs> I think they did it at Cornell actually, but anyhow. Uh, <laughs> so it seems to be for mammals, um, and also this works for birds, it seems to be that the combination of punishment and reward sets the brain up for a dependency that is unique and powerful. So we tried to look at this in humans in an ethical way. Not so easy to do, but we managed to do it. We did it by having leaders, student leaders, come in and try and convince student followers who they didn't know at all to decide on, make a certain decision. It was a decision-making task. It was kind of a tough decision to make. The leader actually had the job of convincing the followers that a really bad option was the best option. It really wasn't the best option. We knew that in advance. We wanted to make it hard for the leaders. Guess what? The charismatic leaders were identifiable on the videotapes of these interactions between leaders and followers. So those leaders with their followers were on videotape. We showed those videotapes to other students. They said, oh, that's the charismatic leader. Oh, by the way, and the charismatic leader did two things. They acted in a receptive, warm manner, and they were also formidable. <laughs> and then it turned out that we, so we knew who, who was a charismatic leader and who was not, but what were the actual followers? What was the effect on the followers? The effect of, on the followers was significant and relates very much to current events today. The followers not only agreed more with the charismatic leader in public, they got the decision over with, they agreed with the leader, okay, fine. When taken away from the charismatic leader and asked, what do you really think about the decision you made? They were more likely to agree if they had had a charismatic leader. In other words, their personal private opinion went more strongly in the direction of the charismatic leader than followers who had a non-charismatic leader. Hmm. So charismatic leaders not only make you decide their way in public or feel their way in public, in private, in your own soul, your own heart, you're likely to change your thinking in their direction. So that creates devoted followers. And those devoted followers, I think we see today. I think we saw them in the Capitol. And the other thing about those followers is that we human beings, just like other organisms, are especially vulnerable to charismatic leaders when times are uncertain, when the environment is uncertain, 
when there's trouble afoot, when we're not sure how the future's gonna look. That's when we seek out charismatic leaders most intensely. That's when we are most vulnerable to them. That's when we better be aware of our vulnerabilities. And we're not, because this is built into a very old evolutionary history. We're just not, we feel it, but we don't understand it. I was, uh, we've we've talked a bit about the pundits in 2016 and how they failed to predict the Donald Trump uh, victory there. And you had, had said, you had the line of that they missed by the margin of charisma. And having come from my background before coming to Colgate was working in uh, polling and market research. And I'm curious, how do you, do you, is there a way or how could pollsters maybe try to measure charisma in public research um, when they're doing these, you know, national surveys or statewide surveys, you know, prior to an election? What do you think? You know, that's why I am so delighted to be in that in the department I'm in, psychological and brain sciences, because I had to interrogate people's brains in order to ferret this out. <laughs> so when my neuroscience colleague said, yeah, you can come into the EEG lab. You really think you got something there, Kitty? And I go, yeah, I do. So how wonderful for myself and my Colgate students to be able to use the EEG lab where we're actually looking at brain activity indirectly um, as people watch political candidates. Uh, you may know this from marketing research, Dan, but people are beginning to use EEG for marketing research now because you can tell looking at hemisphere differences, whether or not whatever stimulus is out there, be it a political leader or a product, you can tell whether either, uh, whether the uh, approach system which is likely gonna make you buy on the, in the left hemisphere is stimulated or whether the avoidance system in the right hemisphere is more likely to be stimulated. When it comes to dependency on leaders, you need both. You gotta be firing on both, <laughs> both sides um, is, what, is what we've predicted. You know, the, it's the leader who either seems too soft or too harsh. You're not that interested in that kind of leader. So this is the way in which you could measure these things. Mm. And so uh, for somebody like myself who is trained as a social psychologist, but I've done a lot of comparative research with animals and uh, cross-cultural research as well, um, it is wonderful to have a lab where I can also interrogate the brain to see how people are truly reacting in, in their heads hmm. um, to the stimuli that, that I show them. So for somebody like me, the mind-brain behavior initiative is extremely important and adds a tool uh, in my toolkit that I uh, have come to rely on. So I think you could use that for measurement techniques. I like it. You know, um, I'm excited to be in psychological and brain sciences at this point in our history we're about to launch the Mind Brain Behavior Initiative, which uh, our department is extremely excited about. And it's going to be wonderful for our students because I don't know of another undergraduate place that puts tools in the hands of undergraduates the way we do. Not only can you study, say, charismatic leaders from uh, looking at their behavior, but you can actually interrogate their brains, how individuals 
what your brain looks like on charisma. And I got to tell you, your brain on Cory Booker looks different than your brain on Roy Blunt. <laughs> it's just <laughs> different. And our students can look at not only the broad behavioral implications of that, but also the nitty gritty about how the brain systems absorb the information we're taking in about something that is, I think, a very powerful force, charismatic leadership. That's interesting. And that is crossing disciplines, right? The mind-brain behavior initiative? Right. It's cross, it crosses disciplines by nature. So mind-brain behavior will be both a nexus of laboratories, not just the EEG laboratory where we record from the scalp brain activity, um, but also uh, other kinds of labs where we can look at where people are looking. We can eventually do um, augmented reality experiments. All of these nexus, these genetics, uh, studying people's genetics and how that relates to behavior, the nexus of all of that will be in Olin Hall. There will be bridges from Olin Hall to so many different disciplines, to the arts included, political science, economics, so many things. And so what a great time to be at Colgate University is all I can say. It's exciting. Yeah. We're at question 13. I, I feel like I could ask you a dozen more questions right now, but uh, the 13th question, I try to do something a little different. Um, yeah. And I, I'm thinking about maybe just a quick little game here. Um, where I give you the name of a world leader. And if you've studied their nonverbal cues, uh, I wonder if you can give us a quick, like one thing that makes this person effective or not effective, or if there's just whatever comes to mind about that person from your experience watching their, you know, interactions. Okay. And if I haven't studied them, I can make it up, right? Nah, we'll, we'll just, we'll, we'll skip <laughs> that person and we'll do another person. But I, I picked all some right. pretty, uh, these are all pretty uh, household names. So, all right. I think we we'll start right off the bat here. Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden. So we actually looked at Joe Biden and um, in one of our studies, uh, Jayla Hutchinson did this work. And Joe Biden was uh, warmer than he was strong in the 2020, uh, during the 20, his 2020 candidacy. Uh, so he did not register as highly charismatic uh, in our study. Donald Trump, I think we know the answer to this. Donald one. Trump rated as highly charismatic. And by the way, we had an interesting pool of eligible voters who told us that many of them were Bernie Sanders, um, followers, not Trump followers. So what we're saying about charisma, when, once you turn off the volume, you've got to turn off the volume. You still get people who don't, who are not necessarily Trump supporters saying, yeah, that was a good show. That was a good act. Hmm. Boris Johnson. <laughs> we didn't study Boris. Johnson. Okay. All right. He's got a crazy hair. He's got about, crazy hair. Yeah. How about Justin Trudeau? Uh, <laughs> what was the thought about the beard? I don't know. Adds to his masculinity. Uh, and I think uh, a look of seniority. Um, we didn't directly look at world leaders. We pretty much looked at US leaders. Straight domestic, okay. All we right, did, well then I'll yes. leave off. I had Angela Merkel. I don't know if you had touched on her at all. We haven't studied her, but my guess is she might surprise you because she can be very formidable and she also looks like your grandmother. Right, it's like both, huh? So she's got the warmth. So I think that non, in terms of her nonverbal impression, um, it's 
more charismatic than you might initially think. And Vladimir Putin? Uh, <laughs> um, Putin, we haven't studied him officially. Uh, I have looked at him just as a curiosity. Uh, he is wonderful at projecting strength, even though he's a fairly short, short in stature. Hmm. Um, and his remarkable um, performance with Donald Trump at Helsinki will never leave my mind. It's a great lesson in how nonverbal impression management is critical for leaders to seem powerful. Putin, if you remember, overwhelmed Trump, even though the height difference in the two was dramatic, Trump being much taller. But Putin had the moves. And that was 13. Thank, <laughs> okay. thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this chat, Professor Keating. We'll definitely have to have you on again. I would love to do an episode about banned um, psychological research. I find that so fascinating. Um, <laughs> I know that a lot of uh, psychology textbooks always talk about those experiments. And, um, you know, I find that, I don't know, it's, it's just very interesting. So maybe we can do something with that <laughs> later. Right. But, well, thank um, you, Dan. Thanks a lot. And uh, make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast. Email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number, with any thoughts or ideas you may have about the show or any questions you may have. I want to give a special thanks to my intern, Mariana Lemon, a member of the class of 2024, who helped a little bit with the research for this episode. And I hope you all have a wonderful week. And as always, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories. <laughs>